Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of January 14th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. January is a time when we decide to do things differently. We decide to lose weight, stop smoking, change our firewall. Well, okay, most people probably don't think about that. But I've been having, for the past year or more, a series of frustrations with Zone Alarm. Now, Zone Alarm is the firewall that I have recommended without question since sometime in the mid-1990s. It was the defining firewall for Windows machines. However, Zone Alarm eventually was acquired by another company, and even before that happened, Zone Alarm had begun expanding its services into areas that it didn't have a lot of expertise. And as a result, the existing current program can cause some annoyances. For example, no no big annoyances, no major problems. The firewall works. But I experienced a series of small frustrations. A series of small frustrations over time is enough to make you decide to go out and look for something else. The breaking point was when I was asked, usually at least once a day, and at the very least several times a week, when I was sending email, if Zone Alarm should approve the email client. I had done everything within reason to make sure that Zone Alarm knew my e- email program, which happens to be the BAT, should be cleared, including going to the control panel and specifically giving it full trust permissions, and still the warnings persisted. Probably this is something that Zone Labs could resolve. However, the company is no longer willing to help clients unless those clients are willing to pay. Now, I'd already paid for Zone Alarm. You buy the firewall. Support is extra. So that was the breaking point. There was another option in late 2006, I had installed the Komodo firewall on my laptop computer to give it a try. The Komodo firewall, unlike Zone Alarm, is free because the Komodo group also provides security certificates for businesses. They make the firewall available for free. So I removed Zone Alarm from the desktop computer, installed the Komodo firewall, and all is good with the world again. Another election in November last year and more problems caused by electronic vote counting. Some cases, votes just disappeared. I'm sometimes accused of being a whiny pinko liberal when I suggest that it's a good idea for boards of election to accurately count all the votes that are cast in an election. I have been confused by that. I don't quite understand why this should be a partisan issue. It seems to me that Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, voters, and politicians all should want votes to be counted completely and accurately. Voting machines may be counting the votes accurately, but we don't know that. And that's not just a guess on my part. The United States National Institute of Standards and Technology. These are the people we trust to run the atomic clock and to set standards for just about everything, say that there is currently no way to ensure accuracy with the current crop of paperless electronic voting machines. That should worry everybody. 
The NIST says that if one were to set out to design a voting system that prevents checks and balances, it would be hard to outdo the touchscreen voting machines being used by local governments across the country. According to the NIST, and here I quote, a software-dependent approach such as the current black box system provides no independent capability to detect whether fraud has not caused errors in the records. In principle, a single, clever, dishonest programmer in a voting machine company could rig an entire statewide election if the state uses mainly one kind of system. This is an unsettling report. We've heard from people who have one agenda or another that voting machines are good or are not good, but it's unsettling to hear from an agency with the stature of the NIST that it is impossible to determine whether the paperless machines are secure or not. I urge you to take a look at the document from the NIST. It's not a final document. It's one that they're still using for discussion. If you visit the website, www.techbiter.com, take a look at today's program, and you'll find a link to the NIST's document. It's a PDF file, so as long as you have the Adobe Acrobat reader, you'll be able to read it. Everything seems to start with an I these days. iPod, iTunes, iPhone. We'll talk about iPhone in a little bit. wonder if iPods are going to be around for a long time. The Wall Street Journal recently had an article about dying or perhaps murdered iPods. There are battery problems. There are cracked screens. There are crashed hard drives. Most iPods have hard drives that are used to store music, pictures, and video. Hard drives don't really like being moved around when they're running. I exercise most days at the Worthington Community Center, and I see a lot of iPods. When I'm there, I usually use my XM radio, which is tuned to the Bob Edwards Show, which has been delayed from 8 a.m. that morning. My XM stores programs on solid-state media, so there's no fear of motion unless I drop the thing. But anything with a hard drive will eventually fail, and carrying an iPod while jogging or doing other exercise that really moves you around a lot, is really just asking for trouble. My younger daughter drowned her iPod, which is a version 3 machine, and had to buy her own replacement. She took the old one in her purse to a concert. Torrential rain caught everybody by surprise. This was a situation where rain wasn't even in the forecast. When she pulled the iPod out of her purse, she noticed water inside the screen. Well, Unfortunately, she tried to turn it on, and that's probably what sealed the iPod's fate. Later, I was able to take the thing apart, it's not easy, and let the water evaporate, but it never played again. When I bought Katie's iPod, I bought a second copy for me. I haven't drowned mine, but at some point the battery stopped providing more than a few minutes of playtime. When I bought a replacement battery, at least I knew how to take the iPod apart and put it back together, thanks to... Katie's sacrificial device. So after several years, my iPod is still running. It has a new battery, and it's still running in part because I use it in a stationary position most of the time, and I tend to be fairly careful with equipment. But people do want to use these devices when they're walking, running, or otherwise exercising. That's why I see them regularly when I work out. Apple has done a pretty good job of designing the devices Apple says about 5% of iPods suffer catastrophic failures, and that really isn't bad unless yours happens to be one of that 5%. The Wall Street Journal article quoted Steve Dowling, who's an Apple spokesman, as saying that the failure rate is extremely low when compared to other electronic devices. 
Complaints about the battery are probably the most common issue. Apple settled a class action lawsuit based on battery problems by giving owners of some iPods credit certificates. Initially, Apple offered a $200 battery replacement. That program was later dropped in favor of one that replaced the battery for $100, and finally to a somewhat more reasonable $70. Now, the case has no screws. It must be carefully pried apart with special tools. Users can buy their own $35 replacement batteries, and those batteries, when you buy them that way, do come with tools that help you open the case without destroying it, but you still need to very carefully follow directions. And, of course, if you break your iPod taking it apart, tough. As cool as the iPod is, and I really do like mine, it is an extremely fragile device. Solid-state memory eventually will replace the iPod because solid-state devices require less power and they are not susceptible to damage caused by being carried around or dropped. The Wall Street Journal article says, As pricey as many models of the iPods are, Some users seem to accept the idea that their iPods are more or less disposable. If I spend more than $200 for something, it's not more or less disposable. And in nerdly news, iPhone. Steve Jobs showed it at the latest Macworld. There is a little bit of tiny print at the very bottom of Apple's website that says... This device has not been authorized as required by the rules of the Federal Communications Commission. This device is not and may not be offered for sale or lease or sold or leased until authorization is obtained. That's kind of boilerplate text. Whenever you come out with a new device that involves radio waves, it does have to be type accepted by the FCC. They haven't yet done that. They undoubtedly will. But perhaps more interesting on the horizon, Cisco Systems has filed a lawsuit against Apple over the use of the name iPhone. What a great start. According to Cisco's general counsel, Mark Chandler, Cisco entered into negotiations with Apple in good faith after Apple repeatedly asked permission to use Cisco's iPhone name. Cisco's iPhone name? Wait a minute. How'd that happen? Well, Cisco acquired InfoGear in 2000, and the iPhone name came along for the ride. Cisco also owns Linksys, and that's the division that began selling the iPhone devices in December 2006. This could get somewhat sticky for Apple. Cisco could file a suit that would delay Apple's ability to bring the phone to market quickly, or ever. Chances are somebody will blink, but the question is who and how soon. If you want to take a look at the iPhone, you haven't seen one yet, even though the pictures have been just about everywhere, take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll find it there. There's also a picture of that other iPhone, the one from Linksys. You've probably been receiving email messages that say things like, House passes stem cell bill in the subject line, or maybe U.S. says Iranians held in Iraq, or even Suzanne Summers loses Malibu home to fire. What do all those headlines have in common? Well, as of January 11th, they were the ones being used as subject lines on spams that claim to come from news sources. They don't, of course, come from news sources. If you are gullible enough to open one, you'll find an ordinary pump-and-dump stock tip inside. All of these messages still get stuffed into my anti-spam 
mailbox, but I still do have to glance at at least the subject lines, and these subject lines make that process a bit more time-consuming. Spam and fraud are increasingly big business on the Internet. For these things to work, it is required that gullible and greedy people respond, but there seems to be no shortage to gullible, greedy people. Those are the folks who think they can get something for nothing, usually end up getting nothing for something. That this is a business, and a big business, is supported by a recent observation that volume of spam now drops sharply on weekends. That's the opposite of what used to happen. Small-time crooks who did other things during the week were the ones who spewed their trash on Saturdays and Sundays. Starting sometime in 2006, I began noting a trend the other way. Weekdays, my spam catcher routinely fries 200-plus spams. On weekends, I may only see a dozen per day. Spam recently dropped substantially, 30% by some accounts. The security firm, SoftScan, says this relief, and it is certainly temporary relief, may be the result of a broken botnet. Botnets are groups of compromised computers, machines that have been taken over by crooks, machines that are used to send out the spams. Some observers say they think that new computers people received at Christmas replaced compromised machines and haven't yet been taken over by the fraudsters. That seems somewhat unlikely. Another possible cause could be the recent earthquake in Asia that disrupted communications circuits there. Prior to the drop-off in spam, SoftScan was reporting that 89% of email messages were spam. That's almost 90%. And about one-half of 1% of those spams carried worms along with them. Be careful what you open. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 14th. 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com and you can send me an email from there too. Thanks. Bye-bye.